Welcome to the Daily Dive Weekend Edition. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and every week, my producer Miranda and I explore the top stories making waves in the news, and some that are just plain interesting. We connect you with the journalists and people who know the story, and bring you news without the noise, so you can make an informed decision. You can catch a new episode of The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday, and it's ready when you wake up. On the weekend edition, we will be bringing you some of the best stories from the week. The biggest story this week happened in Alabama, and it's the biggest story because it has the broadest possible implications in the future. It is called the Human Life Protection Act, and it's the most restrictive abortion bill in the country now. The bill was just signed by Alabama Governor Kay Ivey, and it criminalizes nearly all abortions except for cases where there is a serious health risk to the mother. We spoke to Abby Crane. She's a reporter for Reckon by AL.com, and she joins us to talk about what's in the bill and what it could mean for the future of Roe versus Wade. This bill basically makes it all abortions illegal in Alabama. They make no exception for people who have gotten pregnant by rape or incest. They tried to introduce an amendment, but that ultimately failed. There is one exception for extreme medical conditions of the mother. There's a lot of states that are going through this process right now. The one that just happened just not too long ago was the state of Georgia. They passed what's called like a heartbeat bill. Basically, it would ban abortions after about six weeks when a heartbeat is detected in the womb. Tell us about the punishments of what would happen for this bill in Alabama. The sponsor wanted to make clear that there is no punishment for the person that gets an abortion, only a punishment for the doctor. The doctor could face a class A felony with up to 99 years in prison and you attempted an abortion, which they couldn't really define what attempted abortion was, up to 10 years in prison. Some language, it's, it's particularly interesting. They compared the abortion to uh, the civil rights movement. They compared it to the Rwandan genocide. So I think a lot of people have some problems with that language as well. The abortion issue has been around for a long time. It's one of those issues that's always around. People are very heated about it. Polls from last year from the Pew Research Center and, and Gallup, you know, they say about 60 percent of U.S. adults say that abortion should be legal in all or most cases. With this bill in particular in Alabama, the sponsor was Representative Terry Collins. They said that the purpose of this bill is solely to challenge the U.S. Supreme Court's Roe versus Wade decision. So it seems like a very political way to put it. And I'm sure that's why that amendment that you were saying about the abortion in case of rape or incest was taken out because they want this to be challenged on the legal merits and make its way all the way up to the Supreme Court. Definitely. Um, that was another criticism is this act of political grandstanding. And because they, I mean, they said that the sole reason this bill is being brought up is to challenge Roe v. Wade. And like you said, places like Georgia, and I think there's at least four other states that have some kind of abortion ban. They're all just trying to race to see who can get to the Supreme Court first. How can people currently get abortions in Alabama? From my understanding, there's only three clinics in the whole state that provide the service. That's correct. There's only three. And I do want to make clear, abortion is still legal in Alabama. There are ways to get a legal abortion in Alabama. There's three clinics. I've been to two out of the three and there's regular protesters standing outside or Facebook living patients entering and exiting. I actually wrote a recent story about how protesters are clashing in, in the heat of all of this abortion ban. I think a lot of the abortion clinic escorts have said the violent behavior. I don't, there's been one incident where a protester attempted to hit a clinic escort and they've been emboldened by the language in this bill. Yeah, I mean, it's so interesting how states have been trying to chip away 
at this whole Roe versus Wade issue that gives people the constitutional right to have an abortion. And they're trying to pass these bills so that it can make its way to the Supreme Court and they can make it unconstitutional. They've been emboldened by Neil Gorsuch and Brett Kavanaugh taking places on the Supreme Court. But what happens after that is going to be even messier. It doesn't still not going to end abortions in the United States. Instead, it's going to be left up to each individual state to make their own laws. So there'll be a patchwork of laws throughout the country. And going back to what Representative Terry Collins said there in Alabama, that's still what their goal is. They they hope that it will get overturned and then they can make their own specific laws there in the state. Yeah, she even said at the press conference that she would support an amendment that it exempts rape, pregnancies as a result of rape or incest. So I think a lot of people, it's kind of hard to hear that there some people are pushing this and, and they don't even quite believe in it. For his part, Brett Kavanaugh, when he was going through his confirmation hearings, he said that Roe versus Wade is settled law. So who even knows if they would want to take up that case or, or if, as all these pro-life proponents are hoping, that they would even rule that way. Abby Crane, reporter for Reckon by AL.com. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks so much. For a little bit more on this story, I'm bringing in Miranda, my producer. The Republican governor, Kay Ivey, when she signed that bill into law, she said that this stands as a powerful testament to Alabamians' deeply held belief that every life is precious and that every life is a sacred gift from God. Miranda, help us go through what some of the other states are doing on abortion. Aside from Alabama, multiple states have passed this so-called heartbeat bill, Oscar, that bans abortions after a fetal heartbeat can be detected. And that can be as early as six weeks into a pregnancy before many women even know that they're pregnant. In Mississippi, Governor Phil Bryant signed the heartbeat bill back in March, with exceptions to prevent a woman's death. In Ohio, Governor Mark DeWine signed a heartbeat bill back in April, and this was a day after the state House and Senate passed the law. Much like this one, the Alabama one was signed same day, yeah. later on in the afternoon. In Georgia, Governor Bryant Kemp signed a bill just last week that would ban abortions with the fetal heartbeat detected. The ACLU is challenging that one in court. In Kentucky, there's a heartbeat bill passed in March, but a federal judge stopped it from being enforced. Arkansas signed a bill back in March that bans abortions after 18 weeks into a pregnancy. And that's six weeks before the standard set by Roe v. Wade. Utah passed a similar bill banning abortions after 18 weeks, but that law was blocked by a federal judge. Yeah, so this has been going on for some time where they're slowly trying to chip away at it. There are a few states that are adding protections for abortions. New York is one of those. Yeah, New York passed a law back in January protecting some late-term abortions. And in Vermont, the state legislature passed a proposal to amend their constitution to guarantee the right to an abortion. Yeah, this is going to be an ongoing story to see how this all works its way through the courts. Thank you, Miranda. Thanks, Oscar. Another big political story this week is that of President Trump putting forward a new merit-based immigration plan that would change the asylum process. It would fund more border security. And it would change who qualifies for a green card. Left out of the proposal, anything to do with undocumented immigrants that are here now and the Dreamers or the DACA plan. We spoke to Steph Kite. She's a reporter for Axios for more on Trump's new immigration plan. The key thing about this plan that the White House is rolling out is that it would really change the way we think about immigration. As you said, around two-thirds of Visa green cards are given to people who have family members in the U.S. rather than employment-based visas. And what this plan says that we should do is change that up and make it so that most, uh, a little bit 
more than half of the green cards issued would go to people who are coming to the U.S. for jobs, who have high levels of education, who have been getting good job offers in the U.S. and would limit the number of people coming in on these family-based visas. It also deals with border security as well. And what's interesting about what we heard the president talk about is that he really is talking about legal immigration in a positive sense. And I think for the most part, most people would associate the president as being anti-immigrant. And this is something that the White House is really trying to work against. They're trying to show that the president isn't anti-immigrant, but he's pro-legal immigration and anti-illegal immigration. I think that really came through in his speech. Just to put a few more numbers on it, what you were describing, right now it's 12% skill-based, 66% ties to family members, and 22% humanitarian. So they want to change that to people being admitted with 57% skill-based, 33% family-based, and 10% humanitarian. Specifically on the asylum front, because that's what we're dealing with the most right now at the border, how would he change those rules? We don't have a ton of the specifics of how exactly the asylum process would be impacted. We do know that they want to change the process and make it quicker. They want to make it easier for people who are able to come to the U.S. under our asylum laws to get their case cleared, to go through the process quicker than it is right now, and to make it easier for immigration officials to then deport people who would not qualify for asylum. And this is something the administration has been talking a lot about. They have often expressed their frustrations with the way the asylum process works. And even currently at the U.S. border, we have many families from Central American nations being simply let go because we don't have places to keep them while they wait for their asylum claims or for their credible fear testing. This has created just an overflow at the border. There is a surge of migrants. And because the asylum process takes so long, it just adds to the backlog there. Noticeably absent from this plan is anything to do with handling the illegal immigrants currently in the country and the so-called DREAMers and DACA that was absent from the plan. Why did they make a decision not to include any of that in there? Some senior administration officials told reporters that DACA would not be included and that there are different elements they wanted to address throughout the next several years, that there are multiple other ways to approach immigration. There's the legal side, there's the undocumented side, there's temporary work visas, there's border security. And they really wanted to focus on legal immigration and border security. And part of the reason for that is those are issues that tend to have slightly more bipartisan agreements. Still not full bipartisan agreement on a lot of these issues, but they're more likely to have more agreement than something like what to do with the undocumented population in the U.S. And so for that reason, they did not touch the undocumented population. They did not touch Dreamers, which, of course, is interesting because DACA and Dreamers has been an issue that Democrats have really prioritized over the past few years. It's something that they care a lot about and has typically been at the forefront of immigration negotiations in the past. So it's significant that the administration didn't even include it in this particular proposal. Let's talk about this immigration plan in broader terms. We know that Jared Kushner is the main guy behind this. He's been working on this for months. What do we know about how he's been crafting this plan? The White House really wants a policy, a plan that unites Republicans, that gives Republicans something that they can point to and say, this is what we want, rather than saying this is what we don't want. And so what we're seeing is they're a little bit less concerned with what Democrats think right now. Not that they're not concerned at all, but they're more concerned 
about getting Republicans on board and creating something that everyone can agree on. On the other side of things, people that are traditionally with the president on, on these things, Mark Krikorian, executive director of the Center for Immigration Studies, they have a group that advocates for lower legal and illegal immigration numbers. He was saying that this plan is out of touch with the president's base. There's other Republicans that, as you said, you know, they're hoping this could be a unifying thing for them and they can work on something later. So how has the reaction been on both sides? There are some groups who are on the far right. There are the groups that are restrictionists that would like to lower immigration levels who are simply not going to get on board with any plan that doesn't lower overall immigration levels to the U.S. And because this plan maintains those levels of immigration, the number of green cards given out every year, some of those groups, as you mentioned, Mark Corian, are not going to be on board with it. And one administration official told us that their response to that would be that this plan is about focusing on high-skilled workers and would raise the tax revenue in the U.S. and laid out an argument for why the way they're approaching this is actually in line with these groups. Regardless, as you said, we've seen some people still not happy with the way the plan turned out. But there are others who think it's a great proposal who are on board. And there are a lot of Republican Congress members out there who are still trying to, to wade through the details. Steph Kite, reporter for Axios. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Next, there's an unlikely place for the battle over your data. It has to do with electric scooters. To operate in cities like Los Angeles, scooter companies are required to share data on scooter usage, such as pickup locations, exact routes taken, things like that. Companies like Uber and Lyft right now are objecting to this data grab for fear that it could cause further regulation for its other core businesses. We spoke to Ariane Marshall. She's a writer at Wired for why scooters are the next data battleground. There's been this brewing battle between some private companies and the public sector over data for some years now, and it's really come to head over scooters of all things. So the way this started out is over the summer, LA started putting together a special data standard for any sort of mobility device. So this is just a neat tool that the city can use to exchange information between itself and private companies. And once scooters started to hit the streets in cities like L.A., they thought, huh, this is really interesting. Maybe we'll sort of test our data standard with scooters. Now, a lot of companies aren't huge fans of this because they're a little worried that giving cities detailed information on things like where a trip starts, where a trip ends, where their riders are actually driving their scooters, the exact routes they're taking, is really sensitive information. And they're a little worried that cities like L.A., and particularly cities all over the country who want to copy L.A.'s approach to data, how they're going to handle it as well. Yeah, and we all know that when you download these apps for these scooters, it's connected to your phone. So there's that point of connection there. You have to enter credit card information. So this risk of your information possibly getting out there. But how does this data standard work? It's called the Mobility Data Specification, MDS for short. So what are they collecting and how is this information updated? Something that's really important to know is that LA is saying that they're going to have very comprehensive data protection principles to ensure these companies and to ensure riders that they're protecting their information. So they say they're going to be collecting the number on the scooter and not your information. So they're not going to know that me, Ariane, is running the scooter. They're going to know that scooter A56A is 
going from here to there. And they also say they're going to anonymize the data and then also aggregate it. So it's doubly protected. And then they'll also say they're going to destroy data that they're not using anymore. As for the other sorts of information they're collecting, another thing that's important to know about the mobility data specification is that it's not only a way for companies to send cities like LA information about where their scooters are, but it's also a way for LA to send the company's information. So they'd like to eventually be able to send them directions like, hey, there's a ton of people riding scooters on this boardwalk where they're not allowed to. Can you get someone over there to figure that out? Can you make sure your scooters are off that boardwalk? Or, hey, we see a lot of people are commuting from this area at this time. I think it'd be great if you got your scooters over there so people could use them. So it's kind of a two-way communication tool for cities and private companies to use. But this doesn't really assuage any of the privacy concerns for a lot of privacy-minded groups. They still think that there's a potential for misuse on this. There's an interesting complicating factor here as well, which is that LA, which has come up with this mobility data standard, it's not just for scooters. They want it to be able to be used for any sort of mobility device that's operating on the streets. So that could be bike share, that could be ride hail services provided by companies like Uber and Lyft. And for Uber and Lyft, that makes them a little bit nervous. They have had a history of gating between regulations in cities like LA and Los Angeles, for example, ride hail companies are regulated on the state level and not on the local level. So they're a little worried that this is a way for cities to start to exert local control over how they're operating their other business lines. They are getting into scooters as well, but they're worried about their core business, which is ride hail. Some of the numbers are pretty amazing. In a previous episode of the podcast, we were talking about uh, injuries related to scooters, and they mentioned how there was 38 million trips taken last year on scooters. More specifically in LA, there's eight scooter and bike sharing companies that are permitted to operate within LA County. And that number of scooters and bikes are 36,170. So there's a lot of possible data that can be collected. Something cities like LA are very interested in understanding is how people are using their scooters. They say, hey, if a lot of people are taking it from this part of the city to this other part of the city, maybe we need to build infrastructure for those people so it's safer for them to ride. Maybe there should be a protected bike lane that scooter users can also use. And also they want to see who's riding these scooters. They want to have an understanding of, are these scooters helping communities that have been historically underserved by public transit, by low-income communities? Are these things that are accessible to all different sorts of Angelinos? So there are a lot of questions that cities are hoping to answer based on this data. It's just a question of whether they can handle it safely and then whether these big companies that are worried about other sorts of regulations outside of scooters can somehow put a stop to how they're trying to collect data here. It's always hard to trust a government institution to do the right thing or even with the best of intentions, protect your data and your privacy. It's That's always a tough thing to swallow there. But this two-way communication, I mean, it seems like it could be a positive thing. Are these tech companies like Uber and Lyft, are they overreacting to this? I'm not sure they're overreacting. I think, you know, they're businesses and they're trying to, to make money. We just saw Uber go public at the end of last week. So they're really trying to prove that their business model works. And they're concerned that if cities 
find out a way to collect granular data on their operations, they could, A, somehow release that data to the public, which is their proprietary secret sauce, and also, B, that they could use that data to regulate them and to stunt their growth at this important time for them to be making money. Ariane Marshall covering autonomous vehicles, transportation policy at Wired. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Don't forget to join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this is the Daily Dive Weekend Edition.